0: Hello, I'm Chief Security Officer Fred Burton, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. To learn more about Stratfor worldview, ThreatLens, or Stratfor's custom advisory services, visit us at stratfor.com. This.
1: Cadre would later serve as the founding fathers of Israel's intelligence services. And the notion of infiltrating your enemy, but more most importantly understanding your enemy became a cornerstone of the Israeli defence doctrine.
2: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. You were just listening to author Samuel M. Katz describing the elite Israeli undercover operatives he explores in his latest book, The Ghost Warriors Inside Israel's Undercover War Against Suicide Terrorism. In this episode of the podcast, Katz sits down with Stratfor Chief Security Officer Fred Burton to discuss the group's history and what drew him to this story of these little known units operating within Israel. We hope you enjoy the conversation.
0: Hi, I'm Fred Burton with Stratfor, and I'm here today with my old friend Sam Katz. Uh, As many of you that follow our materials know, uh, Sam and I uh, collaborated on uh, our last book together called Under Fire, which was a story on Benghazi. Sam, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thanks for taking the time. I always enjoy chatting with you, Sam. I think it'd be best to kind of kick off uh, for our listeners as to how you and I first met. So you always tell a good story much better than I do about that.
1: Oh, thanks. Um, I had the very good privilege um, of hearing about the Diplomatic Security Service from a few friends in the NYPD. And they convinced me that I had to do some writing about them. Articles were a book. And as it so happens, in 1996, in June, there was a mini United Nations General Assembly underway in New York. And the Diplomatic Security Service was handling all sorts of um, security for the dignitaries that had come from all over the world. And one of the agents who was handling me said, you have to meet this man. And him and you speak the same language. And he ushered me into this tent where there was... Um, whiteboards and computers and radios um, it looked very much out of Hollywood and there was um, a young handsome dapper Fred Burton
0: and with hair, with hair Sam well same,
1: same with me and the rest is history
0: that's uh that's a good story and uh I can't remember if we had air fat on that trip or not do you recall
1: no um uh, the detail that I was assigned to the highest risk of them all um were the Cubans And I ended up spending about 14 hours that day in a follow car. And um, my love affair with the Diplomatic Security Service began there and continues to this day.
0: Well, that's uh, most interesting, Sam. Now, I know you first uh, wrote about the Diplomatic Security Service in a book called Relentless Pursuit. Why don't you help our listeners understand that? They might want to pick that book up. I know it's... uh, Prominently displayed on my bookshelf.
1: Well, thank you. The um, one of the remarkable things about the Diplomatic Security Service is the fact that up until recently, and I, I don't want to take credit for this, but up until the book Relentless Pursuit, there were very few people outside of Washington, and indeed outside of the State Department, that had ever heard of them. They were the best kept secret in the U.S. government, and one of the unique elements of the Diplomatic Security Service is the fact that they have agents posted at embassies around the world. So they are really the front line in America's war against crime and terrorism. And as it so happens after the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the mastermind of that attack, that first Al-Qaeda-inspired assault on the United States, that mastermind, Ramzi Yusuf, went back to Pakistan, where he was planning further operations. And Relentless Pursuit tells the story of the two assistant regional security officers, or RSOs, who were posted at the embassy, and how they were determined, no matter what, to bring Ramsey Yusuf to justice, and that they indeed were the ones who apprehended him in a safe house in Islamabad. And Fred um, played no small role in, in making sure that that happened, because Ramsey had eluded justice on numerous occasions before that.
0: Well, I feel uh, very humbled that you mentioned me in that book, Sam. And uh, I've, as I've said to you and many others over the years, uh, quite frankly, I've gotten much more credit than I deserve for that case. Uh, it was a good team effort, and we managed not to mess things up uh, like only Washington can do at times, as, as you and I both know.
1: Well, the unique element about a lot of the DS agents um, is the fact that, especially at the time, they were dedicated professionals and law enforcement agents following the letter of the law, but they all had very unique personalities and personas because they had to do the job of so many. They always did twice as much work for half the credit, and because they developed those unique personalities, a lot of times they weren't impaired by the day-to-day of Washington, and they did their own thing um, as long as they could get the job done, and indeed in this case it was a marvelous example of how they got the job done and ultimately if you look at what ramsey was planning they saved about four thousand lives from his plan to blow up a dozen u.s airliners over the pacific in in 1995
0: yeah i think uh it was a pretty good capture uh, now looking back on it and he certainly was an fbi top 10 fugitive and uh the best of his breed at the time uh terrorists like ramsey yosef uh, are few and far between uh sam uh Let's take some time and talk about uh, your new book, uh, Ghost Warriors. I, uh, uh, first, I, I think that's a great title. Uh, it's a fabulous book, and I just saw that it's coming out uh, in Hungarian as well, which congratulations on that. But uh, what's the backstory on Ghost Warriors? Let's take our listeners through what the story is about
1: well um, as as you know most of my work has dealt with Israel the Middle East and counterterrorist these units and going back to even DS I'd always liked to cover um, units or forces that do do um, twice the amount of work for half the credit or that live in the shadows or that really contribute an enormous amount um, but don't get the accolades because of either operational security or just because the apparatus doesn't exist to promote them. So Israel's undercover units are a very unique entity on something very specific to Israel. Um, because Israel is a land of immigrants and the diaspora of Jews has brought in people from all different backgrounds, um, Israelis speak a multitude of languages, have a multitude of appearances, and they're able to blend in. And when the first Zionist settlers came to Ottoman-controlled Palestine in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, many of the individuals became, um, they realized that they were um, a minority in, in the land and they would have to adapt to the customs and even the language of their neighbors. And individuals began wearing Arab headdress and ingratiating themselves to neighboring villages and areas. After the beginning of the um, the movement to create a state of Israel between the end of the First World War and the Second World War, especially um, as tensions began to mount between the indigenous population and the indigenous Jewish population, as well as those who were fleeing Europe, tensions began to mount, and the Haganah, the precursor to the modern Israeli Defense Forces, started creating its own special operations units, and often they would masquerade as as arabs using arabic speakers one of the um one of the founding fathers of this was um ward wingate who would later go on um to become a legendary special operations visionary um he was posted to Palestine and he was tasked with ending an arab uprising in the in the late 1930s a lot of these individuals um, spoke arab slang arab slang is a part and parcel of the modern hebrew language And these individuals felt just as home on a dark night in an Arab village as they would in their own homes. When the Second World War broke out, and all of a sudden the lines were drawn very sharply as to what needed to be done, um, the British army used these Arabic-speaking Jews for their own purposes. The Haganah's unit um, eventually became known as the Syrian Platoon, and they were deployed on intelligence-gathering missions and sabotage-gathering missions in Syria and in Lebanon. The famed and iconic Israeli military leader and politician Moshe Dayan didn't lose his eye battling Arabs. He lost his eye battling the Vichy French And as, as one of these units. And, of course, this cadre would later serve as the, um, as the founding fathers of Israel's intelligence services. And the notion of infiltrating your enemy, but most importantly, understanding your enemy, became a cornerstone, or one of the cornerstones of the Israeli Defense Doctrine. There was masquerading as an indigenous Arab, um, wasn't mocking him, um, quite the contrary, it was a sign of respect, it was a sign of trying to understand their mindset, how they thought, what they ate, um, what they read, the music they listened to. It was something that um, became an embedded element of Israeli special operations and espionage missions.
0: Sam, uh, that uh, fact about Moshe Dayan, I did not know that. That's just simply fascinating. So how does uh, these specialized units uh, work today? Are are they integrated within the Shenbet, the uh, Israeli National Police, or the Mossad? Uh, What's their their structure. Well,
1: first let me just give a, one bit of background of how the um, the undercover units entered into the counter-terrorist domain. In 1970, there was a guerrilla uprising in the Gaza Strip, and the head of Israeli Southern Command, General Ariel Sharon, tasked a young captain, who was known to have a very outside-the-box way of looking at life, to end it. And that captain was a man named Meir Dagan, who would ultimately become the head of the Mossad, and Dagan used that undercover notion to masquerade his commandos in Gaza. Um, they walked the streets dressed as locals. They spoke the language. They went fishing with the locals. They went to bars, restaurants. They even went to brothels. Um, they knew everything that was going on. They, um, they knew how the economy worked. And they also used very decisive and very um, determined military tactics. And within a year an untold um, number of palestinian guerrillas that ended up dead or in custody the uprising ended during the first intifada um the notion ehud barak the um who was head of central command had a notion of creating an army unit that could get into the demonstrations that the palestinians were mounting and subvert them and compromise them by having um soldiers identify their ringleaders and then um be able to infiltrate these individuals and arrest the top tier of ringleaders and operatives. The Border Police, which is the paramilitary arm of the Israeli National Police, said, wait a second, we have in our ranks Bedouins and Druze and Circassians and individuals who come from Arabic-speaking backgrounds. We can do it better. And indeed the Border Guards created three undercover units, one for the West Bank, one for Jerusalem, and one for the Gaza Strip. And they became, along with the army unit, there was an army unit in the West Bank and an army unit in the Gaza Strip, they became the undercover tactical arm of Israeli intelligence. And how it works, and I highlight this in the book, is that the Shin Bet, or military intelligence, are the customers. They're the ones that have the intelligence, they have the information. And they seek units that could carry out a mission to apprehend um, or end a terrorist cell's function and the other units have to compete with one another and present plans that are safe that are legal and that have the most chance of success and as time went on the undercover units especially those from the border guard proved to have unbelievable success in carrying out missions successfully and safely and also where there was the least amount of collateral damage to either side. In the Israeli military, the people who staff these units, these specialized units, these commando units that often capture the world's attention are 18- to 21-year-old um, boys. They're conscripts. The border guard is a professional force. A lot of these guys are in their 20s and 30s. They're experienced. They're veterans. They want to play it safe. They have wives, kids, and mortgages that they have to worry about so the paradigm is is, is quite quite different and in the border guard units where there was this professional core of individuals where there was this unique melting pot the border guard was always considered less than the israel defense forces in terms of quality of manpower and quite the contrary became true that although these people were mainly new immigrants from the middle east or from elsewhere they had a drive to prove themselves in their new country And they also had a very indefinable metal inside them that propelled them to do better, out of spite maybe, to prove that they were just as worthy commandos as their counterparts in the very elite units that the IDF used. So when I decided to write a book about the undercover units and what they did, I wanted to focus on the border guard units specifically and primarily what they did between 2000 and 2006, during the Second Intifada, when the State of Israel found itself to be one of the first and perhaps only Western nation that found itself in the grips of an all-out fundamentalist terrorist blitzkrieg.
2: We'll get back to the conversation with Stratforce Fred Burton and Samuel Katz in just one moment. But if you're interested in reading his book, The Ghost Warriors, we'll include a link in the show notes. We'll also include a link to the New York Times best-selling book that Katz and Burton wrote together, Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. And if you're interested in the role that history, culture and geography play in shaping both the present and the future, consider joining us at Stratfall Worldview. Members get full access to our full library of assessments, geopolitical forecasts, contributor perspectives and much, much more. For more information about individual, team, and enterprise memberships, visit us at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now back to part two of our conversation about the Ghost Warriors with Fred Burton and Samuel Katz.
0: We're talking today with Sam Katz, uh, the author of his new book, Ghost Warriors. Sam Uh, How does uh, this unit operate against the likes of Hezbollah, or does it?
1: Hezbollah is in Lebanon, so um, military units handle them. The undercover units primarily went after Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which in many ways is the Iranian version of Hezbollah inside the Palestinian Authority, and also the groups that Arafat was running secretly. He was talking peace out of one side of his mouth, and then funding um, groups like the El-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. And what the undercover units had to do, which was difficult, which was A, operate um, inside the confines of areas under the Oslo Accords where they could do it, and also when the situation required to go into what's known as Area A, fully autonomous Palestinian areas and including refugee camps and one of the interesting notes is that the undercover units always refer to engagements as Mogadishu a reference to Black Hawk Down because the engagements were always maybe um, six or twelve undercover operatives against 100 200 heavily armed Palestinians and these happened during the Intifada when the unit was carrying out three or four hundred missions a year these engagements were daily.
0: That's unbelievable, and just you shining a spotlight uh, on their uh, activities is just very interesting to me when you think about this because this is, sounds like a group that uh, very little is known. Uh, when you were doing research for this, Sam, uh, in and talking to some of these individuals uh What's your typical makeup of uh, the kind of operator? Are they right out of high school? Do they have any college? What's, what's their well, background? Well, most of them
1: are conscripted um, into the ranks of the border guard to do their military service. Individuals are allowed to try out for one of the specialized units, being one of the undercover units. And if they pass the selection process, they're trained, they go through immersion, or they learn Arabic, where they learn tactics, where they learn all sorts of plainclothes operations. And then they're um, assigned to one of the three units. The individuals, for the most part, are highly motivated. Um, There is no college yet. They're right out of high school. A lot of them come from poor backgrounds, from development towns in the periphery of um, Israel in the south or in the north. And a lot of them are from Israel's minorities, um, Druze, Bedouins, Circassians. So in the makeup of an undercover unit, you have usually what's known as the speaker, who is the Arabic-speaking person will be in full undercover, and then there's the tactical backup. And when they go out on a mission, um, the speakers are usually in a concealed vehicle, meant to look like any one of the vehicles that would be encountered um, in the area. And they have to dress the part, they have to look the part. Um, often it requires people um, masquerade as women. So the speakers generally um, are indigenous and they're native Arabic speakers, but even here they have to practice different dialects. Um, there's a different dialect sp- and slang spoken in Janine in the northern West Bank from Hebron, which is in the southern West Bank. Jerusalem is all together and those who work in Gaza have to mimic an Egyptian version of Arabic that's common there. Um, there's a lot of prep work. And then the tactical end are operators, um, and they sit inside specially modified vehicles in the back of a truck or a van or whatever they manage to do. And they have to sit there sometimes for an hour or sometimes for 12 hours um, in stifling heat, in absolute darkness. And when uh, the communication gear gets a code that the mission is going down, they have to leap out and provide backup. And it's one of the hardest things imaginable when you can consider that sitting in a 95 degree um, heat in a truck with no air conditioning, not making a sound, not going to the bathroom, not doing anything so people don't know you're there, and then burst out of the door, going from absolute um, black into absolute bright sunlight, jumping out, your body is stiff, and that you have to perform. I mean, what they what they do on a daily basis is absolutely remarkable.
0: Wow. Uh, and it's the kind of uh, unit that, you know, as you travel around the world, uh, you would think that other countries perhaps would have similar operations. Are, if you were trying for our listeners to understand, Sam, is, is there another unit that, that perhaps the U.S. Or the, or the Brits might have or the Jordanians the that are Blitz similar to this? The Brits had many
1: years ago an undercover unit in Northern Ireland that was very, very controversial. And here they just mainly um, drove in, in civilian cars, wore civilian dress, and went after um, IRA targets. The luxury of the battlefield for Israel is that it's confined. So you know that you'll be dealing with the West Bank and these towns and these villages, and you can learn it, you can know the routes, you can know the roads, the back roads. A lot of times the undercover individuals can know business disputes that go on, they can see what's going on in the field, whereas the United States has a global battlefield. And you can take an element of a special operations unit and train them to speak the exact dialect that's spoken in Raqqa, and they can master it over years, and they can try and learn it. And by the time they've become true masters at it, the conflict is over, and now they're focused on Nigeria or the Philippines or sub-Sahara Africa or Libya. So it's it's very difficult for a country Um, that doesn't have a very specific and confined battlefield to create highly specialized units like these. But it's incredibly important that individuals um, who speak the local dialect and know the local customs, understand the religion, eat the same food, um, are the ones who engage the enemy because they're the ones who are absolutely expert in dealing with them and understanding them. And in these wars that are being fought today, a lot of times being able to get inside an area is just as important as being able to bomb them from 50,000 feet.
0: Yeah, it sounds like just a remarkable, uh, specialized group of individuals. Uh, is there a nickname, Sam, for uh, this group, or, well, or what group, do they call the, each the other?
1: Unit in he- in the Hebrew acronym is called YAMAS, which is um, the Hebrew acronym for the undercover unit. Each each unit is different in its makeup and its mission. The unit that used to be in Gaza, and um, I spent the most time with them because um, I had previously spent time doing an article or a couple of articles on the unit in Gaza, and I got to go inside Gaza with them before the Israelis disengaged. They had a more military-type mission where they would go in at night um, or set up sniper positions, and then engage the enemy in conventional battles, and a lot of times the undercover units would have to operate military vehicles and even call in airstrikes. What was unique about them was that they ended up doing a lot of work locating Palestinian tunnels that brought in arms, weapons, and supplies and money from Egypt. The unit in Jerusalem covered Palestinian East Jerusalem, which was part of Israel proper, as well as the peripheral towns and suburbs, And they had a different landscape they had a more cosmopolitan target and they also had to do a lot of work preventing suicide bombings from they had to masquerade as um, local israelis as well in plain clothes even orthodox jews or tourists so that they could send out a a mass show of plainclothes force when there was word that a terrorist or a suicide bomber was en route to his target and there's a tragic case of such a warning in 2001 When um, the Shin Bet learned that there was going to be a suicide bombing in the capital and The undercovers were looking and driving and they didn't know what they were looking for because they just knew that it was a bomber and a bomber dressed as a hippie carrying um, about 10 kilos of explosives in a guitar walked into a Sbarro pizzeria Blew himself up and killed 15 people including seven members of of one family and five children and that kind of thing um, you know, was was enormous motivation for you know, the units, so that they would do whatever they could and risk whatever they had to, in order to make sure that they wouldn't have to look at their pagers, um, see that a bombing had happened, and respond to a crime scene.
0: Sam, uh, as you and I know from doing books together and year-long history of writing these kinds of books, uh, you always learn something that surprises you when you're. You're putting together a book. Uh, what was the one thing that surprised you in doing research about this undercover unit?
1: How much? of well, the uh, it's a difficult question because being surprised by by human nature is is always kind of um, causes you to, to reflect on yourself. I, I was surprised by how humble these individuals were in terms of their courage. I was surprised. Um, and how much they had to sacrifice in terms of um, not being with their with their families. It's important to understand that in, in Israel, the battlefield is an hour's drive from your home. It's not like um, going to Afghanistan for a year where you have at least a year to focus on your mission and then you come home and you can focus on regaining um, your civilian mindset. Um, you know, here it was back and forth, and oftentimes people lived an hour from Gaza, or an hour from the West Bank, and they didn't see their larger kids for months because the missions were that much. But mostly, I think that what surprised me the most was how apolitical these individuals were in terms of not feeling themselves as carrying out some sort of ideology, but rather this was their profession. Their politics was, is my fake mustache okay? Their politics was, um, is the guy who I went to training with, who's my, um, you know, who's my brother from another mother, gonna make it out okay. And at the end of the day, they did this as much for one another than they did for the greater good, and they did for um, society as a whole. They were all attached to Motorola pagers. And even if they were at a wedding, or if they were in the shower, or they were at their kid's soccer event, um, if the pager went off, they commandeered a common vehicle, and they went back to the unit to help out. And they did this for two reasons. One, they knew that they were special. They knew that they were unique individuals and that only they could do this. But B, they didn't want to be left out. They wanted to participate. They had a unique language among themselves. They had a unique um, camaraderie. I, I, in the book, in the introduction, I liken them to the RAF pilots during the Battle of Britain. These young men, some of them who were flamboyant and eccentric, knew that they were all that stood between their country and destruction. And they took this awesome responsibility upon their shoulders, and they flourished. And these undercover units felt the same way. The commanders felt the same way. Um, The men who joined the units felt the same way. There was a point during the Intifada when individuals who were in the top tier of the military special operations units, quit their commissions and went to join the border guards and signed on as policemen so that they could have a chance to be in one of these units. One of the team commanders in the West Bank unit, for example, who's a policeman, was awarded the second highest um, Israeli military citation for valor. never happened before, um, but um, he did so much that, um, you know, he revolutionized the whole notion of undercover warfare, that the military rewarded him. You know, this distinction is, um, he's very proud of, but he's very humble. And, and one of the um, missions that the unit had to take out, um, carry out, which was a, um, a rescue of hostages, that they were the first on the scene, he was irate because he was um, doing graduate work. He was already a senior officer. And um, by the time he got to the unit, the, um, the mission was over, and he felt that he missed out. So today, um, his badge of honor isn't the
0: citation
1: that is, is the one and only that ever was awarded to a police officer. It's the fact that he missed out on this particular mission.
0: Wow, what a story. Well, uh, Sam, uh, that's all we have time for today today. Uh For those of you uh, who want to learn more about the secret uh, undercover units uh, inside of Israel, uh, pick up a copy of uh, Ghost Warriors by uh, my good friend Sam Katz. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Take care, my friend.
1: Thank you so much.
2: That's it for this episode of the Stratfor podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Samuel Katz and Stratfor's Fred Burton. If you'd like to check out Katz's book, The Ghost Warriors, we'll include a link in the show notes. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe to learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access. You can always contribute to the conversation by sharing your insights in Worldview's forums section. That's where you can engage with other readers, as well as Stratfor analysts, editors, and contributors on the latest developments. Or if you have a comment or an idea for a future episode of the podcast, email us at podcast at or give us a call on 1-512-744-4300 extension 3917 to leave a message. Also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the show. We really appreciate your feedback and it helps others discover the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.